Hello there, all you pop pickers and funky groovers. It's time for this week's Top 10 Countdown. And at number 10, we've got Fleetwood Mock with Brit Awards Boogie. At number 9 is The Red Sofas with Good Technology. At number 8 is The Shameless Plugs singing Get It Here. At number 7, Star Trekking with Star Trekking. Number 6, Right Set Fred, I'm Too Sexy. At number 5, Give Pete's a Chance and the Pepper 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 Pepperoni song. Number 4, it's Kraftwerk with How Am I Gonna Program This? At number 3, it's the Capaldi Pose and Dream Boys Dream. Number 2, it's Celebrity Mates with Cartmel's Book. And at number one, for the tenth week running, it's Round the Archives with another episode in the can, part two. Take it away. I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 52 of... Round the Archives. We are the people's favourite. We are the people's choice. Ba, 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 no. ba, ba. Oh. Grr. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you to Martin for that lovely uh, top 10 countdown intro. Yes, we, we did put it up on our YouTube site, mm-hmm. but we thought it was about time yes. that it got used, considering mm-hmm. what we're going to cover later on yes but here's martin again now to look at spies and the sandbaggers sandbaggers and other spies this article has been sitting in the around the archives files for over two years it has now been released so that you can hear it the world is now ready to hear me talk about the sandbaggers HMG slapped a D-notice on the whole thing, and here we are. Every podcast has its Secret Service branch. RTA also has its own. A messy job? Well, that's when they usually call on me, or someone like me. Oh yes, my name is Holmes. Martin Holmes. I seem to be watching rather a lot of spy fiction lately. I don't know why, really. Maybe it's the nature of the world in general. Maybe all the old sitcoms aren't quite managing to make me crack a smile. Maybe it's the fact that we watched all of the original Mission Impossible TV series a couple of years ago. Or maybe it's just because, when it comes to selling the concept of watching archive telly at home, the series that seemed to have turned out easiest to get the rest of the household watching happened to be from the ITC stable. 
and that's chock full of super secret agents, espionage and international playboys fighting the forces of evil and diabolically fiendishly plotting plotters. You want more information? 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 You won't get it! Actually, by listening on, you will. We no longer live in a black and white world. That's a statement that's particularly true to viewers of archive television. Once colour television came along, somehow things were never quite the same again. Not as gritty, not as grainy, not as grey. It's also very true of spy fiction. A splash of colour, a hint of glamour, and suddenly the life of a spy started to look rather more appealing to the uninitiated. All cocktail parties, expensive habits, and scantily clad lovelies with perfectly toned bodies flinging themselves at our heroes as they tried to solve the, usually Western, world's problems. Of course, nowadays we all live in a world made up of various shades of grey, several of which don't even involve consenting adults spanking each other in the privacy of their own chambers of love. Back in the 1950s and 60s, in the era of the Cold War, the world was so much more simple, and yet so much more complicated too, and the spies that turned up on the telly in the movies had a far more easily identifiable enemies of freedom to combat the bad guys were the bad guys, and our heroes defeated them on a weekly basis, and that was pretty much that. The Cold War was very cold indeed, and there were a heck of a lot of spies out there in the cold, making cold decisions coldly. The Bond films had been an enormous success in cinemas in the early 1960s, and because success breeds success, and the Cold War was still at its most chilling, television producers thought that they fancied some of that, and spy series upon spy series started popping up, waving around a gadget or two, and then disappearing forever inside a diplomatic bag or twelve. And yet, even before little Jimmy Bond had strapped on his shoulder holster and practised his first merry quip in front of the bathroom mirror in the boudoir of some underdressed femme fatale, John Drake had been fighting for the free world for a year and a half in the very first series of Danger Man. Sometimes I like to pronounce it Danger Man, but that's mostly because I am extremely silly. Oh yes, I am silly. Extremely silly. In 39 swiftly told and surprisingly slick adventures, all first broadcast between 1960 and 1962, Patrick McGoon was announced every week by being given an introducing credit, despite the fact he'd been around the houses in British films for quite a few years already, and surely by the time the series finished, pretty much everyone presumably knew who he was. Oh yes, my name is McGoon, Patrick McGoon. In this first series, Drake is an Irish-American US agent. In the later, hour-long version of the show, resurrected a couple of years later, he would become far more resolutely British. Although, even during these early shows, the almost apologetic, or oh, someone like me, and that, oh yes, my name is, does seem terribly polite and perhaps lacks the brashness of the true American spy. The half-hour episodes really don't hang about, rattling along at a fair old lick, despite a pre-credit sequence and the plot usually ends with a swift exit, never outstaying its welcome or hanging around too far after the plot has been resolved. And these are not simplistic plots either. Some rather hefty and sadly still rather relevant topics, such as people smuggling and the like, are dealt with here in a world where nobody can really be trusted and double-dealing do-badders are behind every plastic pillar or hotel room doorway. And then there's the elephant of the room of knowing that one day, before too many more years had passed, Patrick McGoon would introduce us to The Prisoner, in all its vibrant bonkers and short-lived glory. Knowing about the fact that The Prisoner is coming, it's amazing to spot the fragments of what would one day make up key elements in that later series. So many of the actors, the strange statues on pillars docked about, so many rooms, and the style of music must have all struck a chord with the creative side of the McGoon mind, and that be-seeing-you catchphrase gets used a lot. What's more vague at times is the blackness or whiteness of some of the Western actors playing, oh dear, ethnic characters, but given the times they were made in and the vintage nature of the 
material. Perhaps we should gloss over that for the time being and maybe return to it another day. Colour TV brought a strange lack of grittiness to the spy genre. A couple of years ago I rattled my way through the entire black and white first series of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. with no problems at all, but the second series, now shot in glorious and garish colour, has been much more of a trudge and a long time on. I've still not managed to get more than about ten episodes in. Maybe I've got too many other distractions in the archives. Colour also seemed to put paid to the gritty espionage tales told aboard Sea View in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, because that first year, a bit like the first year of Lost in Space from the same stable, does seem more realistic than the subsequent years when the full-colour crazy bonkers 60s flooded in. I blame Batman, but then, don't we all? Over on the seamier side of the Atlantic, Callan always somehow seemed more real, somehow in the in the monochrome years, as Edward Woodward fell over the furniture and brought down several hunters and intellectuals in those dark, dangerous, dirty, post-war, post-war, Cold War years. And then, once the spoofs began, Napoleon Solo started boogieing his way past the forces of Thrush with the occasional chimp in tow. Meanwhile, Jimmy the Bond had a face change after hanging round in a volcano and avoiding Dean Martin going in like Flint. On this side of the Atlantic, international spies became team efforts, usually working out of Geneva, and once Callan packed it in after a particularly bad day, the spy drama, like many other genres, faded away into the background for a while. And then, whilst we were waiting for George Smiley to come along and renew interest in this darkest of worlds, in 1978, from the pen of Ian McIntosh, up popped Yorkshire Television's The Sandbaggers, which would hang around for three series before being quietly bumped off when its author disappeared in mysterious circumstances after writing just over half of what became its final season. If action and shooting and glamorous fast living is what you're after, then The Silly Buggers, as my father probably never called it, is possibly not for you. This is the men in suits talking in Whitehall offices brand of spy drama, and yet, if you check behind the picture frames for hidden microphones and sit down on your sofa to watch the first episode of The Sandbaggers, an episode called First Principles, it's all rather strangely compelling. After the YTV logo fades, a rather sombre but also catchy theme tune covers a montage of briefcases, people walking, dial telephones and the general paraphernalia of what we imagine covert office life as a spy in the late 1970s might involve unfolding, whilst a typewriter script spells out the name of the series in vibrant red and the cast names appear in plain white text, ending with a terse and Richard Vernon, which, as ever, promises much. Much of the series' location budget is immediately spent as we follow a man in a smart three-piece suit around a travelogue of various parts of London, watching as he stops to give quizzical looks from time to time and pausing to look at reflections in shop windows before descending into an underground station. This, we will discover, is Neil Burnside, Director of Operations of the SIS, and already we know that he is not to be messed with. Eventually we see him looking thoroughly pissed off as he enters a nondescript building in Whitehall, after which the camera pans up to a high window in what is obviously meant to be an anonymous office building. Roy Marsden plays the no-nonsense deops of SIS, Neil Burnside, in a selection of immaculate suits and a rather intimidating buzz-cut and sideburns combination, and, as he enters his office, brushing past Diane, his very efficient secretary, he's immediately in charge, bellowing that as yet unexplained moniker, Diops, into a telephone at the very first available opportunity. Burnside is knocked because he's realised that he's being followed in what he assumes is a random check. And he's even more knocked, get used to this, Burnside is knocked for a lot of the time, to discover that a man introduced only as Willie, half half, who will turn out to be Sandbagger 1 Willie Kane, as played with plenty of easy charm by Ray Lonnan, is also being followed, which, it transpires, is something that simply will not do, at least not without his permission. 
Willie is sent out for a walk, and the person following him is then followed by Jake Landy, Sunbagger 2, who is a character you won't want to get too attached to. This is already tricky, complicated stuff, so you have to watch closely if you want to keep up. It eventually turns out that all this following the followers and being followed leads all the way back to the Norwegian embassy and a thickly bespectacled Olaf Puli playing Torvik, the head of the virtually non-existent Norwegian Secret Service, who is not averse to a little grumpy and devious plotting of his own. He's terribly jealous of the UK special section, a section which we've just learned is far better at following people than his own lot are, and wants to make a special section of his own. This naturally gets him into an awful lot of trouble with Burnside, who doesn't like being buggered about with, although their Tetch interview does serve the purposes of the plot in that it mentions Willie Kane, and the concept of the three-man sandbaggers section is sort of explained more fully for the first time for the viewers at home, anyone who hasn't read this week's Radio Times, or anyone who might just be wondering what a sandbagger might actually be. In a wordy script that you really have to listen to in order to keep up with. It turns out that SIS is a chess piece in some sort of covert wheeling and dealing, and that dear slimy old Jerome Willis is playing Matthew Peel, the deputy chief and Burnside's pain in the backside of an immediate superior. He's telling him that deals have already been done without Burnside being involved. Back in the SIS offices, we discover that Sandbagger 3 is in Hong Kong, so we're not going to meet him this week, and whatever shenanigans are afoot, it's going to involve Sandbaggers 1 and 2 having to deal with it. After all, in this powder keg of political intrigue, it would be impolite of SIS to refuse, even if it means getting their best operatives killed. Although, with all of that chatter going on, I am sometimes reminded of those Hello Control sketches that Fry and Laurie used to do. Anyway, Olaf kicks off again, announcing that something bad has happened, involving a crash plane, some scientists, and an infringement of Russian airspace. In the good old days, it was always the Russians. You kind of knew where you were when it was the Russians. Anyway, the Russians are looking for the down plane, and because his own agents are so rubbish, Olaf wants Burnside's SIS to deal with the problem. Burnside, obviously, because it's a daft and dangerous thing to do, does not want to. Olaf, sorry, Torvik, also requests that Kane, Burnside's top agent, is the one that should go. In fact, he's so insistent about this that you might think that he's done a deal so that the Russians capture Kane, the utter bar steward. Well, it's either that or he just wants to nobble SIS so his own clown school doesn't look quite so bad. Seasoned spy thrillers watchers are by now definitely aware he's up to something. But in this world of double, triple and quadruple crosses, we're still not certain exactly what it is that he's plotting. Gripping stuff. It's nice as a viewer not to quite have all the cards on the table from time to time. Burnside wants to know what he will get in return for all these risks, and for the moment, duplicitous old Olaf is frustrated, and this sense of frustration will cause far more trouble for Burnside later on in the episode. Burnside returns to see the deputy chief, and they have a discussion in one of those drab green offices that feature so prominently in such series, with their walls heavy with paintings by old masters which presumably belong to the taxpayer. Sir Geoffrey has been on the phone, and the fact that his own superior is also Burnside's ex-father-in-law makes the deputy chief terribly unhappy. It's no picnic for Burnside either, however, as he does seem to have several ex-wife issues to contend with. The ever-reliable Alan McNaughton, as Sir Geoffrey Wellingham, shares an interesting scene with Burnside when they play a cat-and-mouse game between powerful boss and resentful underling, but also as ex-father and son-in-law, and the power playing between the two is happening on so many levels that it's thoroughly gripping. Does Burnside have any message for his ex-wife Belinda? He does not. Several issues seem to be coming to the boil here. Belinda has found some of Burnside's notebooks in the old homestead and wonders if he wants them. He doesn't which appears to be a game Sir Geoffrey is playing to test some murky waters. He's also rather disappointed to find out that Burnside already knows what's going on with the Norwegian situation and has already dismissed it, which is a pity, seeing as the powers that be have already approved the mission. 
And we head into the first commercial break with Burnside thoroughly vexed that the rescue op is most definitely on. It perhaps might seem strange to modern audiences brought upon the hypertense beats of more recent dramas that an ad break might fall in the middle of a scene, but as I mentioned, this is a wordy script and the dramatic beats fall as and where they will. After a good couple of minutes pondering upon which coffee, toilet roll or chocolate bar to buy, as we left Burnside to stew in his raging juices, we return to debate the pros and cons of this decidedly dodgy looking deal. This, we imagine, is the sort of thing that was always going on off-screen once Callan had raged at Hunter's latest set of orders. Hunter would go off into other drab offices and get various strips torn off him. And so it goes. And so it all goes. And so this particular meeting continues, with Burnside concerned about his sandbaggers being stretched too thinly and unavailable for other dodgier work, and wondering why his covert ops facility is being used here simply because Norway doesn't have one of its own. Perhaps they should call on John Drake, or someone like him. Anyway, Burnside points out quite shrewdly that this is not a risk for Norway, and that the British don't get anything in return for taking such huge risks. Sir Geoffrey says quite nonchalantly, who says we get nothing in return, and so we come to the real crux of what's going on. The British are building a nemesis missile, and the Norwegians have promised to buy British, rather than buying the new American Warbonnet missile. It must have taken days to come up with suitably plausible names for these missiles that sounded just as convincingly ridiculous as the ones we are actually using in the real world of building stupid weaponry. And so it all comes down to worries about jobs in the aerospace industry, and the lies of a few spies and the unsettling of the relative calmness in East-West relations means nothing when put up against such a political argument. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Anyway, finally Burnside is given a no-options directive from the brand new C, as played by Richard Vernon, who fills us in on the small detail that Burnside is a brand new D-Ops and ought not to be rocking the boat, biting the hand, and so on and so forth. There are, after all, simply the instruments of government. And so, despite the fact that there is absolutely no incidental music, things start to get busy in the corridors of power. Various men in suits have various meetings, we get to see Olaf planning and plotting some more, and Willie tries his level best to remain avuncular. Jeff Ross, Burnside's opposite number in the CIA's London office, played by one of those ubiquitous American actors based in London, Bob Sherman, makes his first appearance, although he is unable to provide any assistance as he has a job on in Malta. Considering where the series is ultimately heading, references to Malta this early in the game are very interesting indeed. And so the British are now committed to the mission, and the RAF at Wokingham are sending up a spotter aircraft. And there's a lot of unhappy discussion about whether the RAF ought to be involved in this at all, although Burnside wants to buy British and insists upon the RAF dropping the spies in anyway, because being British, there's less chance of a foul ahem. This, of course, means that nobody's happy, and just in case you forget it's all set in Britain, footage of the street outside shows us that there's a great big red bus. Klaxon! Going past as normal life beyond these corridors of power carries on unawares whilst Yes Minister with Spies is being played out behind closed doors. We then meet some rather nice RAF chaps chatting about whatever cover story they've come up with, and, via some Jaguar aeroplane stock footage, we cut to a crash plane on the ground, and we finally get to see the Norwegians that all this fuss is about, waving, presumably grateful at being found by the forces of the West, and unaware of all the nonsense that's been going on. Their fate is still uncertain, however, and they might yet fall between the cracks, between the various factions fighting their not-so-good fights in dark rooms far away. Olaf, it seems, is still very unhappy, despite all the efforts being made on his behalf, the old misery. His chief upset seems to be the tardiness of the whole process. 
as if he should just clap his hands and the entire British Secret Service would leap into immediate Bond-like action with their miniature laser beam watches strapped on and ready to go. There's a little bit of discussion about proposed escape routes for getting the heck out of there, and whilst Olaf continues to sulk in a wild Norwegian way, Burnside points out in a terribly calm British manner, because we're still in that era of that particular stereotype having a certain amount of weight, that they are going as fast as they can, which Olaf grumpily points out is not fast enough. Burnside's list of meetings is very full this morning. A meeting in the park tells him that they're in a hope in hell of success, and a meeting with C has him pointing out that they are being made to feel like lepers. After all these meetings, we are taken inside the Ops Room, which is a chaotic maelstrom of typewriters, telex machines, wall maps, and astonishing moustaches. Despite the fact that, hidden behind his heart of stone, Burnside is always looking out for the men under his command, Willie gets a little bit too flippant and is told off in no uncertain terms by Burnside during the briefing, and, because of the office rule of always kicking downwards, Sandbagger One looks as if he's in really big trouble as we head into the second commercial break. After the break, everyone we see appears to be smoking, and in response to Burnside's rather pointed and terse, well, in demand of an explanation from Willie, they are all worrying about mission twitch, which is obviously a sandbagger problem, of which at this stage in the story, they now have several. After all, three quarters of the story is now told, and nobody's left London yet. Well, nobody except Olaf. It turns out that Torvik has been sent back to Norway, having got his way, presumably, job done. Mission preparation carries on and we discover that Burnside's secretary, Diane Lawler, looks after them all like a surrogate mother, being the one who cuts the council the milk and so on, whenever they head out on missions. On location, in an RAF hangar somewhere, our two sandbaggers are suffering from pre-mission pre-flight sickness and the sandbagger hierarchy is further established. Their worries are increased by the fact that they learn that no diversion tactic has been approved and our heroes, not unreasonably, admit to a certain amount of fear. We see them much as we see Tommies going into battle in those 1950s war films complaining, stalling, and with their planes still on the ground, boarding. Back in London, Diane dashes in announcing that Torvik has cancelled the op because he's already sent the Americans in. This news, of course, all comes far too late, and Torvik's not unexpected double-cross finds Burnside furiously asking whether they can abort the mission, just as Ross arrives imploring them to do the same. Meanwhile, unaware of all these developments, the two sandbaggers make their parachute jump from above a wild and windy Yorkshire moor. Probably. Of course, we all know it's Yorkshire, and that's part of the problem. After all, for at least two decades, televiewers have been made well aware that Eastern Europe and beyond looked not unlike rural Buckinghamshire. This more unfamiliar version of the Cold War backdrop suddenly seems far too gritty. Later on in the series, a park in Leeds would double for several of the Berlin-y bits of Eastern Europe. Late 70s Britain, especially in the north, looked like that in a lot of places, although sometimes perhaps not so much. So, unhappily, it was too late to abort the mission, and the forces of plot irony would seem to indicate that our plucky hero is about to die for no good reason at all. There's another round of bitter chatter about missiles and protocols before we cut back to Ray Lonnan, on location, watching the plane and wearing the sort of woolly hat that confirms that we are most definitely not in James Bond glamour territory. We viewers now know that the plane has been mined with explosives, but we don't know whether the sandbaggers know this, and to a music-free soundtrack of bleak wind noise, Willie notices that something is wrong. Sandbagger 2 volunteers to go and have a look, and the two sandbaggers have a little matey old chat about the wisdom of that, which means that the plane blows up without them. In London, we discover that the CIA have been conned because Torvik panicked, and a whole round of political arse-covering begins, especially with regard to protecting the Prime Minister's reputation, which, for these instruments of government, is of course what it's really all about after all, same as it ever was. 
Back on location, the sandbaggers are working their way around the perimeter of a quarry and crossing the North York's moors in an effort to catch up with the fleeing Americans and Norwegians. They make their way across country and are catching up when the Russian soldiers appear and capture the lot. From a safe distance, observing all this, Willie announces with bitter irony that the US team did them a big favour by saving them from a similar fate. In a park near the US Embassy, Ross and Burnside have a little of their chats, which grease the wheels of progress, and we find out that the war bonnet missile is not a fiasco anyway, and, as to his own situation, Burnside says that he'll know tomorrow forenoon, which seems an odd way of putting it. Maybe it's spy-speak. Back in the vicinity of the Russian-slash-Norwegian-slash-North Yorkshire border, in those pre-electronics, pre-satnav days, an exhausted Sandbagger One is in woodland checking his maps. Which leads to a rather lovely moment when our trusty sandbaggers 1 and 2, after having escaped the Soviet troops, Willie informs Jake that he has got bad news for him, that by his reckoning they're already seven miles inside the Norwegian border, and therefore, at least for an episode or two, they are both safe. Happily for us, but not perhaps for the depressing forces of irony. Although maybe episode one is not the place for quite such bleakness. Well, not until Spooks comes along a couple of decades later. Both sandbaggers have got out undetected. Hurrah for the Brits! Yabu sucks to the Yanks! There's another round of bitterly ironic missile chat with Sir Geoffrey, and Burnside is invited to dinner, but announces that he has to go to Oslo, which, being a hop and a skip from Leeds Airport, means visiting an actual airport location. YTV never likes spending money, but a return flight to Oslo for a small crew and no overnight hotel expenses was probably cheap enough to give an authentic international flavour. Perhaps someone ought to try setting a drama on a North Sea ferry. No, perhaps not. At the airport, Torvik is roundly told off by Burnside, and we get a kind of mission statement for the entire series. Think, then think again. Most of the planning is done in those drab, dreary corridors in Westminster, and, because he is an ex-sandbagger himself, Burnside is darkly threatening, and we believe him when he announces that if he had a glass in his hand, he'd ram it down Torvik's throat. There was another, later, spy drama, much like this, called Cover, that hardly anyone seems to remember these days, other than the fact that Sandra Dickinson was in it, not using her ditzy American voice for possibly the first time. I only mention it myself, because I remember that one of the spies was called William Wigglesworth, and that seemed a rather wonderful conceit for a spy series, when they otherwise always seemed to have such gruff, terse spy names. Meanwhile, the Sandbaggers became very much the prototype for several of the spy shows in later years, and some people still consider it to be one of the very best ever made. And who am I to argue with that? Anyway, I have to go now. I think I can see a sinister hearse pulling up at the curbside. Be seeing you. Many thanks to Martin yes, for that. thank you, Martin. That article's been hanging around in my files for ages. I know, yes. <laughs> I'm yes. dreadful sometimes, yes. hanging on things, but I think it was the right time yes. to use it. It is. And now, you and me will take a look at... The Kit Current Radio Show. <laughs> a man whose assets only need a little thawing to have him out of the big freeze of the backwoods and into the big time. Kit Curran. I am the people's favourite. I am the people's choice. 
voice that everybody out there hears. I'm riding on the airwaves, never gonna be the same. Cause I am the leading contender for radio fame. Show here on Wonderful Radio Newtown, and the next caller on the line is Marie. Hello, Marie. Hello, Kit. I'm ringing about, you know, hanging. I mean, it's a proven fact that if you hang somebody, then statistically speaking, he's far less likely to do it again. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Andrew. So, the Kit Curran radio show we have done recently. We have watched, yes. All six episodes. Yes. There is a second series uh, just called Kit Curran, and Mm -hmm. we'll we'll briefly mention that, but we're concentrating on the first season here, aren't we? Do you have any memories of it? I think I do, because when we put the DVD in and then the title sequence popped up, I immediately remembered the music. Yeah. It's, It's very memorable theme tune um, yeah because it's ultra fantastico composed yes. by dave mckay lyrics by ian lafrene and sung yes. by dennis lawson it is yeah. and released as a single yes didn't you, chart though i was gonna say you didn't have the single no. did, did you no, did not have the single but yeah i i remember watching it and i was amazed that it was as short run as it was because <laughs> it's one of those things in my head it was it was around for a while mm-hmm. But there aren't really many sort of shows based around a, a radio station, no. are there? Obviously, you've got Shoestring. Mm-hmm. And I was reminded of WKRP in Cincinnati, right. which you'd never really heard no, of. No, I've not seen any of that. So, yeah, no. I, I wonder if that was an influence on doing a comedy set in a radio station. Possibly. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, just went through the end credits for WKRP mm-hmm. and was pleased to see an associate producer called Max Tash. Okay. And I just imagined he looked like Jimmy Edwards, but that's probably not true. <laughs> But yeah, uh, the Kit Cohen radio show has got a really good cast, it has. hasn't it? Yes. I mean, Dennis Lawson mm-hmm. had not long done Star Wars. No, about sort of six years earlier, really. Yeah. yeah. But uh, what, what, what do you think he's most famous for at this uh, point? I don't know, because he's in Local Hero, which I think is around this time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's, he's one of those faces, I think, that just sort of pops up on the television and um, you know him in stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Local Hero is 1983, yeah. Yes, that's the year before. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he's a, he's a fairly a fairly sort of big name. Mm-hmm. I do like his costumes, don't you? They're very yeah. 1980s. Oh, they're very, yes, they're 80s, very mid-80s, very bright and, and, and leery and, yeah. A lot of them sort of, I was looking at them and I thought, those would be better Doctor costumes for, for Colin Baker than, Colin what, he, than what he was saddled with. Because yeah. they, they are quite... As you say, they're Larry, but they've mm. got a certain style to them, yes. haven't they? It's little jackets and things like that with mm-hmm. lots of colours. Yes. Uh, but you've got Clive Merrison mm-hmm. is the news reader, Damien Appleby, yes. who really hates everything, everything doesn't he? <laughs> and I think uh, when I saw him in a few years later in um, Paradise Towers, mm. Doctor Who, that's what I would remember known him for. Yeah. Because he's also in at this around this time, um, maybe a few years later, a pocket full of rye. 
All right. The Miss Marple. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, where he's got less hair. So I think he's got a wig in the first series. Oh, okay. Because he's got less hair in the second series. I do like when he's reading the news, he does little mimes of things. Yeah. Like to do Prince Charles, he pulls the earphone, he's, the headphones out, the yeah. little round bits on yeah. the side of his mm. side of his ears. Mm-hmm. And yes. Uh, you've got uh, Paul Brook. Yes. Who I always remember as, as that bloke with the eye. Yes. Yeah. yeah. As, as as Les. Mm-hmm. And Paul Brooks, one of those people that pops up in a lot of things he does. as well. Yeah. 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 But uh, the whole sort of setup is that sort of you know kits the the sort of is he the star disc jockey i, I, I guess, guess he possibly is yeah. yeah yeah although he does have more programs on than you perhaps realize because he also adopts the persona of wild man yes. and does another show yes. after his show yes and somehow gets away with it mm-hmm. well he gets away with it because the uh, controller of the radio station at that point is a drunk yes played by john horsley so yeah john horsley is the controller for at the start mm. but the whole point about episode one is that a new controller is coming in who's, mm-hmm. who's brian wilde mm-hmm. sort of fresh from last of the summer wine yes and i really think it's a real sort of classic trapped situation you, mm. you talk about sitcoms um people being in situations they don't really want to be or having to mm. fight against something yes and in many ways if you compare this series to the second series which uh, basically, they, they've all been sort of sacked from the radio station. Well, the radio station is closed down. It's closed down, yeah. closed down yes. Um, yeah. It is almost like sort of comparing porridge to uh, going straight. Yes. And that you miss that structure. Mm-hmm. And as you said, sort of watching the second series, mm-hmm. in the fir- first series, you're very much on Kit's side. Yes. Uh, fighting against the system. In the second mm-hmm. series, he, he's he's a lot less likable. He is. Because he sort of exploits everybody. Yes. And he exploits everybody in the first series. But you don't mind it so much. But you so don't much. mind it so much. Yeah. No. no. Uh, one other... So uh, other notable names mm-hmm. include Derek Goodwin. Yes. As, as producer. Producer-director. And Nick Hurran mm-hmm. as floor manager. Yes. And, you know, Kit Curran, Nick Hurran, you've got to have a system. <laughs> but, of course, Nick Hurran, director... Mm. of Day of the Doctor yes, and, and uh, other things like that. You've got a few other sort of um, decent guest stars as well because mm-hmm. you've got Barbara Lott turning up yes, and Angus Mackay as well, mm. haven't you? Uh, Joseph Marcel is the security guard. Mm-hmm. Constantine? Constantine? Constantine, I think, mm. yeah. Weirdly, uh, he does get referred to as a Dalek at one point. <laughs> and considering this is a few years before his appearance in Remembrance of the Daleks, I think that's mm-hmm. quite spooky. But yeah. this is another series in which Doctor Who is a fictional show on the telly. Yeah. And I, I, mm. was, I always like sort of, you know, D- Dalek references mm-hmm. in, in shows like that. Because, of course, we've said about... Um, mind your language yes and yeah. uh even only fools and horses yeah yeah so it's set in newtown mm. now when we when you say newtown i immediately think of zed cars yes but you said um it's it's sort of implied to be put more london isn't it yeah where do you say it was filmed well according to wikipedia so mm. this is of course could be wrong it was filmed in bracknell yeah but there are sort of references to sort of London, mm. so it, maybe it's a sort of London area. But mm-hmm. it's what Newtown East and Newtown West, according yes. to the MPs. Well, there, there are two different districts, yes, because there's you, you get the MP for Newtown East yeah. in the uh, in a in one episode, in one episode, um, and then later in the series you get a by-election story because the MP for Newtown West has died. Yeah. 
So it's sort of the district. It's obviously quite a big area, so it's split into two. Because you do get that. You get like different MPs for different parts of, sort of the same town. Mm. So, but let's just go through go through the episodes. So the first episode is second of April. 1984. I'm going to get the insert from the uh, okay. from the DVD cover. I'll flap it at you. There you go. So, end of an era. Mm. Uh, Kit's reign is threatened by the unexpected arrival of a new boss, and that that is quite fun in that mm. they, they try to convince Brian Wild that the, the station's an absolute sort of tip. Yes, um, and that everybody is sort of drunken or dr- drug addicts or everything. Oh, I've got a problem of some kind. I've, I've got problems. Because he, he's come from the BBC and had a bit he of has. a nervous breakdown, hasn't he? Has. he? yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a few nice little BBC references. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Both to the BBC itself and to some of its stars of the time. Mm-hmm. None of them very complimentary, as no. to be said. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they, they almost get away with it as yes. well, don't they? Yeah, there's a lot of um, physical comedy in that episode. I'd not realised how good Dennis Lawson is at physical comedy he's very bendy isn't he he is he does a lot of sort of throwing himself about and some of it's not terribly um, PC in the light of of today's world but it is quite funny but you really like the bit where he's sort of sat on the desk at one point yeah and he sort of flips himself over this is in a later episode episode. and sort of scuttles off like a crab you said just to escape yes because there's one we we saw in the second season where he falls mm. out of a window or something like that. Yeah, he sort of throws himself, jumps out the window. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's yeah. But we watched, we rewatched it with Warren, mm-hmm. and the, the final scene is in the pub where yeah. they're sort of celebrating having mm-hmm. sort of tricked Brian Wilde, mm-hmm. and the set is is rather well designed. And there's there's a bit of wall, isn't yes. there? It's sort of internal wall, and Warren was going, he's behind the wall listening, isn't he? And of yeah. course he is. But we should say also about um, Les always eating. Yes. Because he, he's always got a, a big, long sort of baguette or something yeah. in his hand. Or a sort of big roll of some kind. Yeah. I mean, um, Bob Fisher, um, weirdly a sort of disc jockey, mm-hmm. and uh, Tim Worthington will be interested to know that he's reading Rude Food at one point, and that mm-hmm. got mentioned in Looks Unfamiliar Yes. recently. I mean, talking about local radio, have you had much experience of your... What was your local radio station? I don't know. It would probably would have, we we didn't have as far as I know, we didn't have a local local radio. So it probably would have been sort of one of the London ones, sort yeah. of capital capital or, or that sort of thing. Well, we had two CRFM, and Warren right. will know mm. and remember that. That started up in sort of late 1980, and I think it was quite exciting that we had a local radio station. And in fact, I went on it. All right. Okay. Um, there was a sort of kids sort of magazine program in sort of the afternoon, mm. and we I think I might have mentioned this before, but in our sort of science class, we mm. we made some. Um, out of old sort of radiators and tubing, we made sort of what we called solar panels. So you'd mm. put them out in the sun, you'd pass water through them, and the the sun would heat up the water. So the sort right. of water went into at twenty degrees and came out about sort of twenty eight. Okay. So we'd extracted energy mm. sort of from them, and um, 
so that was us and then another group had, had sort of experimented with dissolving teeth in various liquids okay. sort of sulfuric acid and sort of fanta and things like that <laughs> right. and uh, so we somehow our sort of teacher got us onto 2CRFM mm-hmm. I, I think I remember him saying something like oh Andrew you should come because you won't be stuck for words or something like that <laughs> <laughs> implying that I was nat- was nattering which is okay. not true um, I'd probably be a lot more nervous about it now, but mm-hmm. I remember sort of, I can't remember who the sort of presenter was, but they said we'd invented some solar systems. And being a bit of an astronomy geek, I had to say, no, actually they're solar panels, not <laughs> solar systems, because you wouldn't be able to fit the solar system into the studio, would you? And considering I was about 12, I thought that was wonderfully sarcastic. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I think um, the, the group that said about dissolving teeth, um, I, I don't think Fanta would like what, what they said about no. Fanta versus sulfuric acid, but mm-hmm. hey-ho. Anyway, so the new broom is mm-hmm. episode two, yeah. and have we said his name? Roland. Yes, the, Roland the, the Simpson. He's um, sort of getting rid of the dead wood, isn't he? Mm. And basically he's going to sack everybody, everybody including Kit and... How does Kit manage to sort of get round this? He sort of, he makes out that he's some sort of big community sort of charity. Yeah, helping sort of cha- people. Yeah. So he sort of, he sort of. He invents this kid, doesn't yes. he? He's got this, like, some disease it, or something. Yeah, yeah. He sort of guilts him into it, really, doesn't yeah. he? And then, then he's, he gets this actress in, yeah. uh, dressed as a nun. Yes. To, to appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think is this the first episode where we get all the stuff with the um, drinks machine yes, as well? I think it is. Yeah, because yeah. Clive Merrison's always mm. in this battle with his drinks machine. Yes, it's it all, never gets always eating his money, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so that that one that one's quite fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bread and circuses. They're they're worried about their viewing figures, mm-hmm. aren't they? They've had a survey done, and mm-hmm. most people have never even heard of Radio Newtown. Yeah, so they try doing some sort of OB stuff, don't mm-hmm. they? And having a chat show, and, and yeah. none of it ends well, does it? No, though they do get. It's only that um, when Kit starts to come up with some ideas, and none of them are particularly um, uh, salubrious ideas. They're all a little bit dodgy, but yeah. he drives the figures up. Yeah, that's of that. the thing. He, he sort of goes for low standards. Yeah. And, and doesn't he have sort of bingo and yeah. things like that? And, yeah. yeah. And people start listening. But yeah, it, 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 all, get, it all gets a bit. Doesn't they get a, a complaint from the IBA or something yes. like that? Yeah, yeah. Is that is that where Roland ends up, up up in hospital or something? Yeah, P is for positive. Kit discovers that life can be awkward when people start thinking positive. So he holds mm. this sort of class, yeah, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it sort of cross between sort of aerobics and sort of psychology, isn't yes. it? Because is <laughs> later in the second season, he, he does sort of go into alternative medicine and, yeah. and stuff like that, but. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Constantine, who'd been previously very laid back, mm. suddenly starts starts laying down the law, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. Um, and they manage to regress uh, Clive Merrison to yeah. why he's why he's so annoyed with everybody. Yes. It's sort of a traumatic childhood, and isn't he it? suddenly becomes um, nice, nice, yeah, for a short while. No, it doesn't last long. No. Yeah. Election fever. Uh, a by-election means media coverage, cameras, and publicity. So he goes to see the sort of all the candidates, mm. doesn't he? And sort of because the is it, the conservative candidate doesn't really want a 
No. Get involved. He's got a huge picture of Margaret Thatcher up yes. as well, isn't he? Yes. But uh, eventually, sort of, the, he gets in d- mm. d- despite sort of you know Kit not having treated him very well. But mm-hmm. he sort of, Kit sort of says it was all a test, and he mm. sort of passed with flying colours. Yeah. Um, and then the big break is. Uh, Kit goes to have an interview at the BBC, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Which is where you've got Barbara Lott. And, yes. Because you've got Barbara Lott. Angus Mackay. Who's the other one? Ian Thompson. Ian Thompson from, yeah. from the Web Planet. He yes. doesn't sort of jump up and down. No, and, and be a monoptera. And, well, op, an opera. Yeah, he's not big enough to be a monoptera. <laughs> monoptera. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that you've got this one other candidate mm. and sort of... Kit sort of undermines him, doesn't yes. he, and sort of yeah. puts doubt in his mm-hmm. in his soul. So yeah, he's really good. He, he's 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 quite a fast talker. So he's very good at talking people into things without them realizing he's actually doing it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, se- the second season doesn't sort of appear until nineteen eighty six. And the, we should say that the first season is on um, ITV. Yeah. And the second series is shown on Channel, Channel 4, Four, despite being made by Thames. Yeah. Uh, but you've got Lindsay Duncan yes. turning up in that. Mm-hmm. Very weird title sequence. Yeah. He's, sort of, he's on the back of a. He's, he's on, on roller, roller skates. skates on the back of a milk float yeah, or something. Getting pulled and up. she's sort of leering out the window. Well, not leering, looking out the window, confused. Yeah, Because yeah. there's a the weird thing with that is that you've got the first episode, which is one door closes, mm. which has got um, Derek Goodwin as producer yeah. director. Yeah. Then it feels like there's a sort of um, change behind scenes. Yeah, because Anthony Parker takes over. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, and it, it it does feel different, and and it is a bit too loose for me. That yeah. I, I can never sort of get my head around it. But those, I think those first six episodes, yeah, are, are, are really really quite good all the mm. way through. It is it is helped by the cast, I think. Yes, because uh, you, you you have got a, a load of good people mm-hmm. sort of bouncing off each other. And yeah, I I I just like I just like going back to it. It, it mm-hmm. was it was quite fun. I, I would sort of recommend it as a yes as a piece. What what's your f- sort of favourite moments? Um, I, I say I do like all the physical comedy elements because yeah. it's you know he's he's remarkably good at them, Dennis Lawson. And mm. I would have before I watched it again because I don't I didn't really remember the, any of those bits. I would have never thought it of him. Yeah, because he always. I mean, he's not a really serious actor. He's done some sort of sort of big stuff, but he's—I think he's one of those actors that just pops up in various different things. He's quite happy to take a job on if it'll, you know. Yeah. I mean, we should say series one is written by Andy Hamilton. Yes. And he was on the the Sunday morning thing, yes. wasn't he? Because um, he's written a book in longhand. Yeah. And we sent a tweet in. Could, does Andy have any memories of working on the Kit Curran radio show? Yeah. But they neither, either didn't send it to him or yeah. or just ignored it so yes. it's a shame we did make an effort to contact him because because yeah. he doesn't like technology he's no, not he's, he's, he's not on he's, anywhere. he's not on computers generally no. is he no. so he's quite hard uh series two is co-written with andy and guy jenkins yes um yes he's sort of pre um drop the dead donkey and uh, there are elements of this that they would carry over to drop the dead donkey because mm. obviously in that you've got um another damien who's a news reporter who is much like it is very unscrupulous and will yeah sort of get his own way where he sort of goes to disaster things and puts teddy bears there and um, 
that sort of thing. I mean, we should also mention George, who's the caller at the yes, start of of the first. Uh, 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 yeah, sort of in the first scene, George is always calling in about something. something yeah, and I quite like that observation because I think radio stations do sort of end up with a, with a core of regular callers, mm. some of whom are a bit odd. It has to be yes. said. I I, I have yeah. heard some very strange calls to mm. the local radio stations. Yeah, but all in all, I th- I, th- I really enjoyed that. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. The second series is definitely not as good as the first so mm. if, you, if you do buy the box set just regard the second series as a bonus yeah really but yeah the, the first series is definitely worth watching i mean anything with brown wild in is always sort of good value i think yeah. but yeah a, a thumbs up for yeah the kit current radio show and mm-hmm. as we said available on dvd yes yes yeah. so worth adding to your collection yes indeed okay we'll say mm. thank you then and yeah see you again Bye bye. Bye. You said viewing figures. Eh? Well, they would be worrying about the viewing figures because they're a radio station. Oh, I meant listening figures. Yes. I'm, I'm a fool. Unless there's somebody sitting outside watching who's going in and out. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, right, next, a little brief thing from Martin about Danger Man. Yes, indeed. So I'm sitting in the car on a Sunday morning thinking about Danger Man. I've been watching Danger Man last few weeks now uh, and there's some ambiguity over sort of series three where it begins and where it ends and and because uh, there was a there was a set of 11 that were broadcast as series three but generally uh, were filmed in a previous recording block anyway I've, got, I've arrived at the the final recording block and it's guys oh, taking a turn for the dark i mean the three episodes i've watched the uh the first one is is uh, Called a man, a man on the beach, or the man on the beach, and uh, well, that basically involves uh, our hero being hacked by a machete and left for dead, and and that isn't really normal for uh, a spy program in the sixties, or certainly an ITC one. However, of course, you they're up against uh, at that time Sean Connery as James Bond, and maybe they were trying to get a bit away from that and be a bit sort of darker and more real world although then Callan is being made at the same time and Callan is kind of giving you a whole different spin on on the uh, sort of seedy and bleak in when it comes to spy drama then you get the, the the man who the man who wouldn't talk and he well it was it's basically halfway through you've got you've got uh, John Drake has has a, a contact who's helping him and because this 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 man who's been uh, brainwashed or tortured, you know that thing that they do in the sixties with the light bulbs, uh, it's a bit it's a bit Ipcress file really. Although you look at the way they've shot it and you think, why didn't he just walk out the circle? But then again, you know, because he's not chained or anything. But hey, anyway. So halfway through, uh, he gets all confused. This spy they're trying to get out of the country, and and he murders um, uh, John Drake's uh, assistant his contact so who's you know been quite a nice bloke all the way through and then you get to this one i just watched this morning which is uh say it with flowers 
again, a nice little man who, who obviously has no life apart from his sister, gets persuaded to go to uh, Switzerland and get murdered. And um, his sister is his only sort of contact with his old life. Uh, and it's Ethel from EastEnders, but let's put setting that aside. Um, anyway, he's just gone off to Switzerland and his uh, his sister gets a bunch of flowers at the door and then gets horribly murdered. And again, it's so bleak, so dark. And I've enjoyed Danger Man. I'm about, what, 73, 74 episodes into the 86-episode run, so I'm getting towards the end of it. But, God, he's gone to some dark places. And I don't know. I, I, yeah, putting it in context of spy dramas of the 60s it's it's I've, I've always not really wanted to watch danger man years ago i uh i i enjoyed the prisoner and somebody i worked with must be 20 years ago and it gave me his file of old uh six of one stuff about port Mirian and and the prisoner and everything and i kind of it had lots of danger man stuff in it because they were sort of patrick McGowan fans as well and i looked through it and there was lots of danger man stuff and i never really got around to it. i thought oh, it's a bit black and white but a bit slow since then of course i've watched things like the saint and thought actually i'm enjoying this and so I finally decided to take the plunge and have a look at Danger Man, and, and it's been fabulous. I really enjoyed it, but but this this dark turn it suddenly made is uh, it's just very odd. Still, there you go, Danger Man. Keep at it. I'm not far from the end now. It goes into colour briefly before turning into the prisoner, and that's a whole different story. Ta-da. Thank you to Martin for those yes, thoughts. Thank you, Martin. I don't really know Danger Man at no, all. We've, we've got it. It's been sat in the house for mm. goodness knows. Well, Warren knows it better than me, yes. but hey. Yes. But it is apparently the same character. Okay, really? Yeah. John Drake is the prisoner. Oh, we'll get left. I think it's just McGowan's playing the same part, really. Well, in some ways, this issue is sort of coming to an end already. It, it doesn't is. feel like we've done many links. No. But that's because we've left the big article yes. till the end this it's time. It's so thank you to everyone for mm-hmm. listening and don't forget to come back for episode 53. Yes, which will feature um, a tribute to uh, Diana Rigg. Yes, of course. Yes. We couldn't fit it on this one. Yes. So here's Paul and Nick looking at... Armchair Thriller. Again, around the archives, people. It's me, Paul Chandler. Um, I'm back here again with Nick. Uh, we promised you uh, a part two of this article, and uh, here we are to talk about series two of Ooh. Armchair Thriller. And I, I've been in in uh, cold storage for two years to uh, uh, you know <laughs> the two year gap. It's not true. Uh, <laughs> um, we finished the last article by talking about jobs for the boys. And um, uh, Robert Banks Stewart script edited the first series. He actually left. He actually, I think he had to leave Doctor Who to to do it because he he was going to do what became the Talons of Wing Chang, which was a foe from the future. And I think I could be wrong about this, but I think he he left. I read somewhere that he had to leave that to Robert Holmes because he was he had to start work on Armchair Thriller. So um, similarly. It's a small world, um, and uh, Robert Holmes actually takes over from Robert Banks Stewart and assembles 
what became the seven in, in total, I think yes. it was seven yes. for series two. But it's more complicated, isn't it? It's very. As far as, as, far as the production companies involved. In we have a conundrum, yeah. listeners, and I don't know whether you might be able to shed some light on it because I would love, again, a, 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 sort of the anal side of it, I would love to read about the production of this, this season in particular because um, it was affected, I believe, by the famous technician strike of 1979. Um, but there are some things... The, the compensation of which doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I'll explain a bit later, but um, just to say the title sequence, I haven't mentioned much about the title sequence. It's a, um, of series one, it's a sort of live action figure in a chair um, sitting down and then the mu- when the music goes Duh! at the end, uh, the, figures, the fingers go across, uh, over the side of the armchair arms yes. and, uh, and yeah. as a grip. Um, now in series two, I I think this is slightly naff uh, production design, decision, but they did an animated one, um, which wasn't half so scary, and a, and a sort of slightly modified version of the music, and uh, they 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 made the 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 figure in the chair wobble, like he was in a <laughs> Scooby Doo cartoon at the end of the, when the music goes at the end. Now I don't like this I kind of it, it spoils what was a, a, a bloody good title sequence and mm. it, it just, it's just so unnecessary it made it so ho- hokey at the at the very end when the series was just doing so well um, so I, I bad production decision well, I think <laughs> I should probably add that um, the theme music was composed by Andy Mackay who was a member of Roxy Music yes um, who were who were back in action again they'd had a I heard a, a sort um, of whisper. I, there was another series which we watched more recently, where Andy Mackay was the uh, was we did the music. I can't remember for the life of me what it was, but um, it's an excellent theme music and um, it sets the tone brilliantly. But why they had to fiddle with the title, the titles, I do not know. Um, it started the new, second series started a little earlier in the year, um, and the oh, I've got it here somewhere. There we go. Um, at the eighth of January in nineteen eighty, obviously I was keen on seeing another series because I'd enjoyed the first one very much. I was now eleven, and um, I suppose you know well, maybe I was allowed to stay up a li- little bit later, but I think it was around about the same time. Um, the first story is called The Victim. Now, do you remember anything about the victim? I don't. I don't remember a good deal about that one. It's a six-parter. Uh, yes. Uh, and it's a Thames, one of the Thames ones, which the previous season had all been Thames. Yes. Um, but uh, no, I don't remember much about the plot. Um, no, it's a kidnapping story, do, basically. Um, yeah. You got you got a girl kidnapped. Uh, um, played by Lorna Yamsley, who was seemed to be the very much the child actor of the time. She then went on mm. to do a very good episode called The Flypaper of, of Tales of the Unexpected. Um, oh, yes, that is very good. I've seen that recently. Yeah. Uh, so really chilly. And Alfred Burke, what, if you want, he, he does pervert very well indeed. Bless him. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Yeah. Um, but this, yeah, it's a six-parter. It's an original... Uh, script by is it Michael Ash? Michael, Michael Ash, Ash, that's yes. right. Directed mm. by Gareth Davies. Um, you've got 
at the helm of uh, playing the kidnapper, uh, the kidnapped girl's father, is the very excellent John Shrapnel, sadly who died recently. A uh, very good Shakespearean actor who was in Space 1999 with Brian Blessed, playing a sort of deranged spaceship captain in Death's Other Dominion, and he he he's just amazingly dramatic. And uh, there's there's um, Gerald Sim in one of his rare serious parts. Um, Alan Bennion, who um, Doctor Who fans will know as the Ice Lords in all the Ice Warriors stories, playing a wonderfully weary Yorkshire uh, reporter. Uh, who's kind of like very down to earth and seedy and kind of, um, and uh, Paul Jericho of oh no not the mind probing fame which doesn't quite uh, hit hit the spot the same way as John Shrapnel does but hey ho and you've got Bernard he- Bernard Kay as the as the the man behind it all he's 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 mm. always great um, lo- lots of location work in in Yorkshire including. Uh, the denouement was filmed in a wonderfully derelict um, old sort of re- re- old factory. Now, it, what, the thing that 70s, and we're watching a load of professionals at the moment, were from the box set that we bought last year. Mm. And it's made like our lockdown chum, basically, <laughs> the professionals and the goodies. <laughs> um, and um, we, the, the amount of derelict old you know locations that they've got like so much atmosphere and i don't think you you get that much wreckage these days um but they're, they're terrific and that they make full use of it in this last day i have to say that it's a it's a bit weird because there's this subplot involving this chap who is very respectable chap who's got involved with these things uh villainy and it's the front he's their front man and he's, he's got an attack of conscience and there's Clive Dunn's wife, Priscilla Morgan, playing his kind of love interest. And it's just like um, you've switched off armchair thriller and turned over to Last of the Summer Wine. Because <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> uh, it's jarring at first, but then you realise how it weaves into the story and it's quite clever. But it's like suddenly you've yeah. got these two comic, comical characters in the middle of, in the midst of these psychopaths. <laughs> it's mm. just really interesting. But um, it's yeah, one of yeah. perhaps, the, even though it's excellently produced, it's perhaps one of the, the, the lesser ones. Um, it's extremely mm. entertaining, but again, I think you just need that extra extra edge with a six-party. You think you've got to keep going. Um, mm. But, I mean, there's, you know, it, it does the job. And, I, you know, I've, I don't think, <gasps> here we go again. But um, it's, it's mm. not quite as special, shall we say. As some of the others, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd even forgotten the name until the DVD came out. Um, yeah. But mm-hmm. again, that this was about two thousand and eight. That whole spurt of them came out. So, mm. um, the yeah. The, ne- the next story up is um, well, it's where where question marks first raise their head because it's called Dead Man's Kit. Four parter directed by Colin Buxy, written by Tom Clenahan. But it, it's one of the two southern production yes. ones. It, it's weird. This it's weird having these two that are done by southern, and it's weird that they're not like at the end or anything. They're no. this is like the second one. It was so, but there's very little known about it. Yes, I, this is there? this is the conundrum. I would love to know the answer to. Uh, it's like a puzzle that I've never been able to solve because um, the technicians' industrial strike hit. Um, the, uh, the the ITV in the summer into the autumn of 79 
Now, this we are told is was uh, is the reason it, it it was another story called Chelsea Murders was postponed because of the strike. They they had problems with the strike. Um, so fair enough. Uh, okay, so far. So to fill the gap, they brought in these two four parters, which had been made by Southern. Now. What doesn't make any sense is that it was made by a totally different production company, Southern Television, but with the same team um, of the armchair thriller, Andrew Brown, who actually adapts the second Southern one, which is a bit later on. And Colin Buxley, of course, is Verity's husband. So, you know, it's obviously, it's almost as if, I mean, it would be a massive coincidence, even if it was just happened to be two four-part dramas that they were making at the time and um, uh, somewhere else and they were drafted in but they're actually although it's sort of halfway there and halfway not because the production team's the same but the the whole presentation is completely different from and it's all in as with the second southern one it's actually all shot on film um, on location up the up there with the mysteries of the American episodes of Tales of the Unexpected. Yes. Not much explanation as to yes. about what's going on with those. I would love to know exactly what what went wrong. And, and they, I mean, they got it, which meant you actually got two small stories and you did um, on the, the, you know, not, not broadcast, but you actually got two, two more stories to enjoy uh, that season. But yeah, so you've got the two four-parters that were drafted in to fill the gap. So, and how were they chosen? Were they, like you say, by rights, they should have been right at the end. So, and also, if you look at, I mean, I, I don't know if this is any clue or they just made up the date, but on Dead Man's Kit, um, they are, they're looking at someone's letter and it's dated April 79. Um, so I've always assumed that it was it was shot around that time. And again, the latest story, High Tide, there, somebody signs into a hotel April 79 a little bit later so I think the two were shot back to back I think they, they were both um, directed by Colin Buxley um, so which was long before the strike um, so they just I, why? <laughs> it's, and also um, I mean, I'm, I, I'm jumping the gun a bit here but when I eventually watched um, the Chelsea murders. I was expecting something like Sharda, you know, where huge chunks were missing, but literally only a one, or, one or two continuity announcements, and the and uh, all bar the first and last episode with music. And I thought, well, they could have, they could have finished this in time. Uh, the strike was over by I, unless people really were that busy that you know all the actors have finished their work. So I, I'm I'm totally baffled as to how they got into this problem um, in the first place and, and why, the, why the stories were done at Southern. There's, a, I'm, there's, a prom- there's almost certainly a perfectly reasonable explanation, but I just am fascinated by that conundrum. Maybe I'll be disappointed when I find the answer. <laughs> It'll probably be sinful. But, but the- no, I was going to say, what, what about the actual story of Dead Man's Kit? Is it uh, uh, a favourite or...? Uh, no, uh, probably not. It, I, I don't dislike any armchair thriller. I must admit, I, you know, I could happily sit down and watch any of them. Uh, if if you were to come round and say, "Oh, let's stick on Dead Man's Kit," I'd be quite happy because there's something good to say about every story. Um, I don't think it's. I mean, there's it's slightly spy, slightly naval action, and but it's it's it. There's two things against it. I think one of which is 
it's just too slow slower burner even for a four-parter and also um in terms of the lead actor larry lamb doesn't quite have the clout that maybe uh, certainly because we're re-watching series two at the moment and uh you've got six episodes of john shrapnel absolutely lighting up the screen and then you've got larry lamb playing this kind of simple soldier trying the simple sailor trying to sort of solve this mystery and you, you think oh, yeah he doesn't quite and and yeah, but there, i mean it's there's there's some wonderful moments so the cliffhanger ep- to episode three is is quite chilling and it it turns out to be a fairly satisfying spy story um until the last episode i have to say morris colborn is in it as the lead sort of nasty and he's he's a bit wasted I don't mean he's drunk, <laughs> but you know he's he's not utilised enough, really. I think they they were trying to sort of keep him back towards the end because he was supposed to be on the run. But uh, and there's a month for that wonderfully weird actor Philip Locke with a funny eye that was in um, uh, the Doctor Who story uh, Four to Doomsday. Uh, he, he he plays a, a sort of quirky naval intelligence man who delivers some very dry put downs which is quite fun excellent um small part for um clive merrison as the uh ship's captain uh he's really I and mean, if you've seen him in paradise towers in with the funny voice and everything I was like, and um but he's he really does like as with um girl walk quickly a great great part for him and he which plays deadly straight um, so yeah, not one of my favourites, but and but interesting to again, it's nice location work. Interesting to see um, around that, you know, sort of uh, something completely. It's a bit different. The whole texture feels different, um, quite literally, of course, because uh, <laughs> it would it would be unfit. Um, well, we're back to Thames again for the third story of series two. Yes, Dying Day. Yes, uh, another four-parter uh, directed by Robert uh, Tronson who had done the Limbo Connection, um, and written by John Bowen. Yes. He's got some loony idea you're going to murder him, have him murdered. Anthony Skipling. Professionally, a hitman, that kind of thing. Uh, Put out a contract, you know, one sees it on television. Chop, chop. My name is Anthony Skipling. Yes? Anthony Skipling. I am a harmless little bugger, and I don't know that I know. Have him killed? Mrs. M and I thought, uh, simplest way, just tell him you've changed your mind. Have him killed professionally. Have him killed professionally. You have a very distinctive voice. Memorable, immediately recognisable. I think you, you must know that. I speak with some deliberation. Yes, perhaps it is noticeable. It is noticeable. There is a reason. I have a malfunction of the vocal cords which will in time, I'm told, kill me. However, it has so far proved possible almost indefinitely to delay that time. Mrs M and I thought, uh, no use telling him he's made a mistake. Uh, That would only make him worse. He's got a fixed idea, you see. The first step with these puggly wallers is agree with everything they say and then tell them you've changed your mind. You're the balasab, you change your mind whenever you like. They're perfectly susceptible to logic. Malum! Barasab gone change his mind. Teak high. Off you go, Johnny. He's a foreigner. We don't use the word. Why is the sun shining outside your window? Why should I have him murdered? I don't know. Some secret. Something to do with my house? Well, it is done. Murder, one hears of it. 
I do not believe that I have ever done it. If it were to be done on my behalf, I do not believe I should be told. Oh, I'm afraid I can't accept that. I have proof, or well, I had proof, a recorded conversation to which you were a party. The tape fell into my hands and was later recovered. Uh, what fell into his hands? A tape. It was to be done professionally on February the 28th. The date was in some way important. Well, I'm here to tell you, you'll not have me killed on February the 28th or any other day. I've tracked you down. I have your name and address. I shall leave a letter with the bank. The police will be obliged to pursue inquiries. February the 28th? If you wish to acquire my house, you must do it in the proper way through an estate agent. In any case, I do not wish to sell. On February the 28th, I shall be in Inverness. Wednesday. I'll be in Inverness. And I have to say, this is the one I wanted to see the most, because uh, I did the unthinkable. Uh, I watched the first episode and I was so freaked out by the cliffhanger, I actually did a bunk. Um, I, I sort of tuned into little bits and pieces, but uh, as also little bits and pieces when it was repeated. But um, I actually did a bunk and, um, and missed the rest of the story. And I spent then 28 years wondering what had happened, as you do. Um, what was anyway. the thing that freaked you out? What was the... uh, Well, I don't want to say too much, just in case the viewers want to watch it, but it's a scene on a train, and the, the, the cliffhanger episode, uh, cliffhanger to end of, end of episode one, uh, where you see a character earlier all mutilated and everything, and the way it's done. Uh, Robert Tronson is one of the best of the armchair thriller directors he really he gets some splendid location work again snow you think oh where was it snowing uh it was probably early 79 when it was shot uh ian mckellen is just knockout he's he's brilliant in it um and it's my favorite um uh, john bowen again it's wonderfully um it's even more it's the most disconcerting of the lot because uh it's you've got this it, it's innocent man you know kind of and everything just spirals out of control and it's it's beautifully macabre and there's again as what makes macabre things work is little touches of realism like the pub and something on a cassette and it's all it all builds and builds and and again wonderfully made so i ticks all the boxes that one and it's of course as a full part it's just boom 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 you know um and i remember watching it all the way through for the first time with you uh i think it was one of the weekends you came down i think it was may 2008 i seem to always associate it with getting a new computer um and um but yeah we 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 sat and watched that uh, all the way through and i wasn't disappointed i must admit um quite quite tragic at the end um but uh and you've got kate coleridge who's sylvia's um daughter uh playing his his, his sort of um carer well not carer but sort of befriender should i say sort of samaritan woman and um yeah, it's it's for me it's armchair thriller at its very best. Um with splendid central actor. You've got Cyril Shap as well, who's done many a who. Um and who else is there? Again, this is McCluskey in her second uh <laughs> second armchair thriller. Um but uh, do, do you remember anything of that? No, I'm afraid I don't. I see the Prentice Hank. Oh yes. In that he's one, in though. two actually. He he's also a policeman in um uh, Dog's Ransom. So he gets a double dose of bow. And he, uh, Apprentice is actually Scottish, and he gets to be Scottish in this with a beard and a, a very unprenticed Hancock part. Uh, he, he and another man play interrogators who kind of everything, pretty well the whole story is done in flashback, which I completely forgotten about when I, I saw it. Um, and yeah, it's a real 
it's a it real boils up quite nicely um and yeah and of course it's it's an original script from from Bowen. um in actual fact i'd wish i kind of wish that uh books existed of the the tv story you know the 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 tv only stories um because that would certainly be one i don't know if it would have the same impact but uh, I'd certainly see, like to see an adaption, <laughs> like the same way as these are adapted from the books. Uh, you've got it would be fun to see a um, a book a, a, a book adapted from the TV ones, <laughs> yeah, adapted yeah, back again. Like a exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, well, uh, the next story is also directed by Robert Tronson, and it's called Fear of God, another four-parter, written by Troy Kennedy Martin. And um, I see it has our friend Michael Sheard in it. Yeah, it certainly has. We've just finished watching that again, actually. I, it's one I get out quite regularly. It's, a, I think it's probably amongst my favourites. Um, again, a full party. You can see Robert Holmes is at the helm because he really, when he was in Doctor Who, he kind of massively reduced the six parters because he, he, he felt they were a bit flabby. And so it's telling that I think you've only got three, four, three six parters. But although obviously only two of those were transmitted, um, but Fear of God, yeah, it's it's a nice con- again like Limbo Connection. It's a conspiracy thing from uh, Den- uh, Derry Quinn. Um, now I don't have the book present with me, but I have read it, um, and in my opinion, the TV version is vastly better. Um, it tightens it up really nicely. It makes a much better character, the central character, Paul Marriott, played superbly by uh, Brian Marshall. Who I know from, well, I mean, he was on so many programmes that I like, but uh, he was, uh, and he also had connections with Australia. Yes. He was in things like Prisoner and yeah. and Neighbours and Home and Away, as well as yeah. things like The Avengers yeah. and Need and Line and Professionals. And he was a fantastic actor. Um, and this is a wonderfully un-Brian Marshall part, because usually he plays heroic goodies or heroic baddies and this is a guy although he's a good guy he's a, a bit of a shambolic kind of uh, a, rather a, a disorganized journalist he I kind of a, a rather shambolic divorcee who lives in this ramshackled house and does the washing up by putting it in the bath and uh, can't, uh, sets up can't be asked to sleep in the same bed uh, you know every night and he I, I Troy Kennedy Martin and Holmes. You can almost almost feel their humour coming out in 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 the scripts. But in the book, Mar- the Marriott character ambles all around London and goes to these religious institutions to try- find out this regiment of God, which is a sort of right wing uh, thing that this girl who falls uh, supposedly falls to her death was part of. And he takes an awfully long time to sort of get round to everything and, and the, you, you lose the whole impetus of the drama which stays in the spooky ramshackled house in the in, uh, the first episode and he investigates around again Robert Tronson does a super job on the atmosphere and the lighting and everything and because you've got some although Marriott's flat is on, on studio the, the house is, is real it's real location um, you've also got Garrick Hagen who's another Doctor Who figure as, as one of the bad guys um Peter Celia, who's always playing the, the posh uh, ministry type in, in everything. Um, nice performance from a girl called uh, Madeline Church, who plays the younger, the, the younger sister of the murdered girl. Um, and that's a nice performance because it's not... 
it, it's not wimpy, um, but it's just got that edge of vulnerability. And Kendrick Martin and Holmes really kick the denouement in the uh, it, it kick it into shape because in the book it's a car chase and it ambles along and and Marriott sleeps with one of the people that he's supposed to be investigating and it's it's messy and um, he, he 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 does. The, the actual way that they do it on telly is much wittier and much sharper and, and more exciting and and um, the, the the murder girl's murderer comes he comes face to face with them and there's a real exciting struggle at the end and a funny bit at the end which could have fallen right flat but they build up the tension so much it's it's almost a relief um, and also Alan Armstrong who plays a a very curly headed um, police a special branch man again. The, the, uh, the police can go in two directions in this case uh, they're, they're not very sympathetic in dying day and they're they're, out, they're and they they, they 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 grow on you in, in in this one and they get involved in the action and get dirty and you know it's it's a very very satisfying little four-parter and yes a bit hokey i suppose i mean somebody was saying some of this because it's, it's all about sound weapons and uh, somebody one of the reviewers said oh yeah that affects more like doctor who you know and i thought oh, is that such a bad thing you know it's actually really well done so there is room room enough for more hokey um good versus evilly kind of things which is more this story rather than the more ambiguity of and psychological drama of some of the others uh but it's extremely watchable and again full marks to troy kennedy martin for and holmes for sort of pulling together what's actually a, a rather rambly book i'll probably buy it again at some point i, I was kind of having a bit of a clear out and i thought it's it's the it's probably the only adaption I've read so far, the only original book I've read so far, which actually uh, disappointed um, a bit. But uh, yeah, um, very very re- very recommended. The next story we've got is another one of the southern ones. Yes, um, and um, it's called High Tide. It's a a four parter, directed by Colin Buxy again, and written by Andrew Brown. And um, it's the one that I've probably seen most recently. Now, re- remind me, did we? What, did I watch it with you as a four-parter? Um, yes, um, I will. Re- recently, recently, yeah, because I've I've only got the four-part version. I think the uh, yes. Talking Pictures has shown it recently, yes. because I think, if I remember rightly, um, Simply Media who put out because, of course, these obviously the Thames. Uh, DVD releases went out and then there was a bit of hiatus because it was a case of ah right who's going to put out the southern ones so the southern ones came along about a year later um, firstly Dead Man's Kit and then High Tide with the most appalling amateurish covers I think the fan the, the fan site on Armchair Thriller actually produced covers that matched with the Thames ones uh, sort of fake covers that there was more uniform, which I actually did. I did uh, do, run off a copy of, um, but um, yeah, this. The, the, so they they do show a movie version in uh, Talking Pictures, which own Simply Media or Simply Media, they own Talking Pictures, um, and but I've I've got the the, the original four part version. So we've I remember showing it to you um, at our previous home. So like about 11 12 10 11 years ago uh but also more recently because i i yes. before lockdown yes. this for covid um you and i were going to take a trip to plymouth 
um, and I was going to sort of interest you in the idea of looking around some high tide locations because it's all shot around the um, Plymouthy sort of oh what's the um, it's, 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 it's the it's actually set in the place called Yarmouth which is sort of you can almost it's sort of a combination of all sorts of different um, places in in uh, around, in and around the the south coast um so and uh, ian mcshane is the lead he's very understated very uh, kind of moody and um again the character kills somebody at the beginning and and so he doesn't immediately elicit your sympathy even though it's not a very nice character that uh, and there's a reason for it is he runs over the dog that that's the scenario that's actually uh bill there's a picture of um him in the tv times i remember when high tide went out strangling uh, markham terrace who played the co-pilot in horns and Nymon. and um that's what sets the things in motion I, like dead man's kit it's a bit of a slow burner but um i think what makes i why i prefer it to dead man's kit is um i suppose it builds the intrigue a little bit more uh ian mcshane holds your attention a little bit more you know he's a more engaging character uh, than than Larry Lamb's uh, Chalky White, um, but I, I, it just has a has a bit bit of a sinister quality. And the, and the end is very good as well. It's um, there's some very moody um, chase across the uh, the sand the sand things. But it's interesting to see in both because um, from the book the Verity Lambert book it paint, portrays Colin Buxley as a very man's man kind of laddish character. And this is, or you can almost feel this in his armchair thrillers because you've got um, a naval ship with lots of laddie lads, and and the, and the, and, and, and the, the lead character is very boysy. And of course, you've got Ian McShane, who's a very man's man kind of, uh, quite a heavy drinker in his time, I understand. And uh, you, you 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 can almost feel those kind of alpha male vibes from the from, from the sort of and you and you you know the lead character goes boating and um, but like like Dead Man's Kit, it's nice to have something entirely on location. Mm, I'm watching him Shane in Lovejoy at the moment. Um, I've had the box set for ages. Yeah. and uh, sort of tackling that at the moment. Yeah, um, I like him. I think but, I think he's uh, a good actor. Yeah, and, and and also one of those <laughs> actors who who doesn't seem to get any older. You <laughs> know. <laughs> and, he, and he's also one of those people who's had, um, you know, a, 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 th- a second or third career um, doing really high-profile things in America mm. in the noughties and, and, and the nows. Yes. Um, Absolutely. So, so just, as you, just as you think, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, Lovejoy was very high-profile in, in the 90s, but uh, he went on to do something even more That's right. Oh, goodness. Well, he, yeah, he's, he's a very prolific actor. Um, the other person who's in it is um, Terence Rigsby, who was, uh, a few years later, was Dr. Watson to Tom Baker's Sherlock Holmes, uh, playing one of the ne'er-do-wells in, in High Tide. And um, he, uh, he... I have to say, there's a bit in part one... I, 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 the direction from Buxley is very, very good and very atmospheric, but there is a technical... Uh, cock up in the first episode because uh, everything's done on film quite low grade film actually I'd love to see a, a spruced up version of both those sun 
stories. Um, but when he, uh, Terence Rigsby has a scene, a one-to-one scene with uh, Ian McShane in the garden of, of the, the hotel that they're staying at. And um, is it Terence Rigsby is actually wearing sunglasses. And when you do the reverses on, on Terence Rigsby, um, you can actually see the production crew with the filming, <laughs> filming him uh, in in his sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm not one of these people that criticizes that, these because uh, these things because I, I think they're rather nice to see. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's quite a nice moment. On a on a slight sideline, very briefly, I've been watching Dynasty in ah, um, lockdown. Yeah. And the amount of boom mics that wander yeah. into shot in season three, you just, you wouldn't, you know, some shows yeah. that we like get get reputations for being tacky or badly made. And um, you don't expect no. it from, 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 from Dynasty. Yes. You, you expect it to be high budget. They wouldn't be, you know, but actually I've seen more boom mics in season three of Dynasty than I've seen in any episode in, in the whole of all, the whole of Doctor Who. Maybe you and I can team up at some point and do Dynasty on on RTA or or Shetty. Yes, because yeah. it, it, it was actually even though I've never gone back to it, it was it was among my favourite programmes in the eighties. I, I've Dynasty on a Saturday night. Whoa, you know, and that was great. I mean, yes, I was in it for the totty, but um, you know, <laughs> it was it was a fun show. I enjoy, I always enjoyed it, and it would bring back a lot of memories. I think because I remember I watched it from the beginning to nearly the end. Um, but anyway, I digress. Um, talk, going back to the High Tide, um, I actually tracked down a book. It's a little bit older than some of the other uh, armchair thriller stories. It was uh, written by P.M. P. Hubbard in 1970. And um, whereas uh, Fear of God is probably the biggest departure from the book that you can imagine, um, High Tide is uh, Andrew Brown, who created um uh, armchair thriller actually adapted it so it, it is actually very very faithful to i think i'm not sure if it's ever recorded what p uh, pm hubbard thought of the adaption because i think he was still around at that point um but it really yeah even the wholesale chunks of the dialogue are, are taken from the book and uh, certainly the events happen and you, of course uh, the whole thing is done unlike Dead Man's Kit maybe that's why I find High Tide a little bit more engaging is uh, everything's done in a monologue you know and you see Ian McShane narrates it in his thoughts uh, all the way through and that's very much how that is very much in keeping with the book and again there's whole phrases and things like that I don't know if that makes it lazy or faithful depending on your point of view <laughs> but uh, that's uh, it's yeah I, I, I like High Tide yes it's it's, it's got so, uh, although not among the, the, the finest it's it's still it's still good well, we're on to the penultimate story now the Circe Complex six episodes directed by Robert D. Cardona and written by David Hopkins yes not, not one I remember. No, it's a bit of an odd one, this one. It's complex being the right word, actually. It holds six episodes because it, it keeps going. It's got twists and twists, and um, it's, a nice, it's a nice piece, actually. I really like it. It boasts a very good central performance... Well, an excellent central performance from um, Alan David, who, uh, again, we're referencing Doctor Who all the time, I'm afraid, but... Uh, he played the Undertaker in The Unquiet Dead with Christopher Eccleston. Uh, he plays a psychiatrist in this. 
in the best traditions of armchair thriller, he actually does some quite reprehensible things in the course of the story. But the character has such a sense of humour and a, such a sort of twinkle in his eye about him that you're never, you never quite hate him. You hope he's going to get what's coming to him, but at the same time, you can't help liking him. Um, so it's a, it's a very clever character. There's a, the lead character who is the, uh, effectively plays the role of the Circe in it, i.e. The, this female temptress who turns people to swine in, in the Greek mythology. Um, is played by Beth Morris, who, again, sadly died quite recently, who is, um, was the lead villainess in the Blake 7 episode Mission to Destiny. Uh, she was the murderer in it, and she was in Crucible of Terror as well. Um, and again, it's it, she, there's a, she has a succession of these men in it, and she, she she plays all sorts of games with them throughout. The other person who's in it is a guy called Michael Deeks, who played Swiftnick in Dick Turpin. Uh, he was very much the, an actor at the time, and it, it the, the book uh, it's adapted from the book, and one can imagine that. Um, they fell. I think it was published in '75, so that's sort of a three or four years uh, before the adaptation. But um, yeah, it's it, this, the book. I mean, full marks to was it who who is it that adapted it again? Sorry, I'm just reaching for uh, David, David Hopkins. Hopkins. He did a great job because the book, the the, the book is uh, is very very good, but it's it's a difficult one to put into sequence because it's all done in diary entries. You know, sort of like um, essays from from each character so one would have one could almost imagine uh, him cutting it up and sticking it on a piece of paper and trying to decide which bits go where it's fairly i have to say it's fairly faithful to the book um and the book i think probably deserves a second read at some point because um it's it's very uh you know it's it, there's a lot it's very there's very layered which me which justifies its six episodes, I think. It's a, it's slightly more successful six-parter than, than perhaps The Victim. Um, and it's it's got more to offer. And you've also got stage doctor Trevor Martin in it as uh, her first husband in this. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it keeps you going. And it twists round and round and round and has a nice twist at the end. So, and of course, this was um, how the the original series ended um the, on this one because the 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 story i don't know it was if it was supposed to come after Cersei complex or or before but um which uh is the next one but no i i'd, be, I'd like i'd be love to show you Cersei complex again at some point yeah yeah um so that final story um <laughs> yeah. is the one that i have the i have the most associations with um uh, or it should be the other way around. It has the most. Anyway, um, it's called the Chelsea Murders. A masked killer claims yet another victim in Chelsea. Six apparently motiveless murders. But the police are narrowing their circle of suspects. It's the timing, Summers. The timing. It's all too neat. Makes you start to wonder if we should be looking elsewhere. No. I've got a feeling. I know it's one of those four. Frank Colbert Greer, art lecturer. Local reporter, Mary Mooney. 
get this feeling that something Steve Gifford and Artie Johnson to all of us well don't you see we haven't just got a barmaid here we've got an artist model murdered in Chelsea isn't that great Mr. Walton look what's come posted last night she had three lilies in her hand and the stars in her hair were seven. It's from a pre-Raphaelite poem, sir, called The Blessed Damozel. I had to learn it once at school. The Blessed Damozel looked out from the gold bar of heaven. Her eyes were deeper than the depth of water, still did even. She had three lilies in her hand and the stars in her hair were seven. Have you gone raving mad, Mason? Well, don't you see, sir? It fits. Gold bar, gold key pub. Water stilled at even, drowned in the river at night. It fits her and it connects. Mason, I've got a horrible feeling you're going to tell me something. Oh, sorry, sir. The poem is by Rossetti. Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Our murder victim was Diane Germaine Roberts. DGR, sir. DGR. Um, it, it was supposed to be a six-part story, but it was never screened as a six-part story. But it was it was actually screened, wasn't it, as a feature film um, yes, in 81. Here we have the next um, conundrum, because um, I, I, I first became aware of the Chelsea murders existing when the paperback version of it with one of those masks. It's about a serial killer who wears a particular mask. And um, there was a picture of it on on this book in paperback parade our favorite our mutually favorite bookshop ever and um it was and it said now an armchair thriller and i can't this was a been would have been about 1980 or 81 and i thought hey you know at that point i think cersei had gone out and i i thought i'd you know i with the exceptions of the even though i'd sort of opted out of uh, most of dying day i was aware that it was on i was aware that the next story when it when the next story was on and 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 of course i didn't miss anything else and so i thought I, it, it would was this not how did i miss this did it was it a different region or you know so for a long time i thought uh, right so what went wrong you know did they, so and of course when they found when the sites came out uh, the, the websites came out prior to the DVD releases. It explained about Chelsea murders. It was done as an armchair thriller, but never made it because of the industrial strike. And I saw some photographs of it. And of course, they uh, put out the DVD uh, as a as a um, as the original six parter, which didn't have. I think the music only the music the only music that had was upon parts one and six, and uh, the the um, announcer is only on parts one and six now uh, so you've got a movie version that was cut together and shown in the christmas of 81 now in those days i used to read the tv times from cover to cover and and i would have been aware of the title by then so how on earth did this i, I don't really understand how Chelsea Murders slipped my notice because I, I, if I had known it, I thought, oh, that's Chelsea Murders. I'm Jess Thriller. I'd, I'd like to watch that. And for some reason, I, I, maybe it wasn't in our region or something, but it was, it's completely slipped me by that it was ever shown. So it was, it made, was, a, by, it was made by Thames. Yeah. Um, directed by Derek Bennett. Um, yeah. Written by um, Jonathan Howes. I own the book as well. Yeah. Because it's, because it, I'm, 
sort of, well, a fan of horror films, but a fan of slasher movies, and yeah. it, it falls into some of those sort of areas. It does. And um, 1981 was a big year for slasher movies. Um, uh, it was sort of known to be sort of um, a very um, famous year for for that genre. So um, it fits. It fits in. So. Um, but it, it uh, yeah, it's it's one of those ones that uh, you showed me, and I um, instantly sort of clicked with, and ended up buying my own. It's the only one that, at the moment, that I I, uh, I own. But and, and the funny thing is, um, uh, I have I have another friend who uh, that's the one that clicked with him as well. But probably because we like we like, you know, we 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 do like horror movies that. That it has that sort of extra reach, um, uh, but yeah, I, yeah. I mean, with um, so it was it was lovely to see it at last, um, and with the six. I'm glad they retained the six parter as well. Heaven, heaven only knows why the music's only on episode one of six. Well, I mean, who kind of thinks? Um, oh, I'm doing music for this show. Oh, there's an industrial strike. Right. Oh, oh, I suppose I better rush fast forward to the last episode and do the music for that, just in case. And uh, if so, if them, all the music existed, why didn't you slap it on? Um, or if they just got the continuity man back, just to, you know, for a sort of fifteen-minute job, just reading it out. Um, there is nothing, uh, anything like the complexity of the problems. Uh, the the same strike affected. Uh, well, I don't think it was an industrial. It wasn't a stain. Exactly the same strike that affected Shada, but it was certainly um, uh, there was. We, uh, it was rife with strikes at the time, but um, but the, the wholesale chunks of Shada weren't shot. Whereas this, it could easily have been finished in post production. I, I, I really don't know quite why so they didn't remind, do it. Remind me what music's on the movie version. Um, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, so it's quite a long time since I've seen the movie version. Um, yeah, but I is, presume. Is it, is it, um, yeah, oh, I see what you mean. It, yes, I mean. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, if they finished it for a movie version, then surely they had some music on it. But um, I don't remember. I don't know unless, how many yeah. times. I tend, I tend to watch the episodic version just because of cliffhangers. Yeah, I like cliffhangers. So I, I must admit, uh, my loyalty to the the series as 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 a format. So I always feel that that's the format it should have gone out in yeah. anyway. Mm. And also a whole chunk chunk. There's a great chunks of it missing uh, of the narrative missing. The because um, the, DV- uh, the DVD Frank- does contain both both versions, doesn't it? The DVD contains both. Oh yeah, versions. fortunately yeah. so. Yeah, I mean there's there's an outrageous character called Frank in it who. Uh, uh, you know, this whole show, there's a marvellous performance from David Gant, and, and it just, there's, it's miss, a lot of that's missing in the, in the, in the movie version. I mean, if you, if you were to come around and say, you know, well, let's watch the movie version, I'd do it like, you know, I'd stick it in like a shot, you know, and, you know, I'd be happy to, I, I'm happy to watch any of them. I like the fact that it's set in nine, early, early 80s London, London as well. You see yeah. lots of sort of, it's very, um, yeah, just an interesting historical document as well. Uh, it is, and I, and it's about. I mean, it's quite interesting. From, uh, I mean, by two thousand and eight, I was making about to make my last movie, uh, my last film, uh, when the DVD came out. Um, but in uh, by ni- when nineteen eighty, when it was, a, I would you know, I would love to have made a film, and of course, I went on to make films. But um, it's about a group that are really kind of having to because film was 
very, very expensive in those days, having really to bump up the cash from anywhere they could to, to finish the movie. Um, and it's it's so weird. And you've got a very cool, almost huggy berry uh, black guy uh, in it who you think in normal terms, you know, he would be seen dead <laughs> doing, some, doing the, what you see of the film. Uh, which is it's it's a shame actually i've always thought it's a shame you never see more of the film the the rest of the film or, or more, it's, you see more of them being prepared it's, it's an interesting concept um yeah. uh, it, keeps lovely... guess, it keeps you guessing as well get back the to end, the police it keeps you guessing as to who the who yes. the killer is yeah. yes because they they give you uh, s- several suspects there's a lovely world weary performance from dave king as the uh, as the main inspector guy I mean, you know, you, uh, it, just when you thought you were fed up with sort of well-weary inspectors, he just he just wonderfully put down faces. Um, and um, you've got what have who else have you got? I say David Gant um, as as the uh, sort of drug pushing um, sort of gay member of the group. Um, a guy called Michael Feast who turns up in um, the. Um, James Nesbitt series Murphy's Laws, his boss, um, and it's yeah, it's it's good entertaining stuff. I don't think it quite. I mean, it's good stuff, but it don't quite, quite think it quite fits into the armchair thrilling because it's almost like it almost feels lifted from a a a a, a, a sort of cop show. Um, but I mean, it's 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 got a lovely theatrical feel to it the, i think for me of the regular character the, the regular characters the, the the lead characters the weak link for me is the female journalist um compared to brian marshall who just he just picks you up and kind of shakes you in, in his he's got such an energy to his performance I, I, she doesn't cut across as particularly likable or um although it is quite funny she she has a romance doesn't she with the the swedish guy who uh played by an actor called dennis douglas sheldon who uh is probably known to doctor who fans as uh, uh, causing katarina's demise in dalek invasion of earth um and she he she she sort of is thinks he's he's they're going to get together and he i think of you as a sister <laughs> they kind of like, Oh, and she gets all stroppy and narky and kind of, and like, ah. <laughs> but no, they, it's it's a great you know I don't mind how many times we watch it because it's it's good fun uh, story and I, I've read I I don't actually currently have a copy of the book but I do I have read it and I would say yes very faithful and again it was published in seventy eight so it was it was pretty fairly off off the press uh, from Lionel um, oh. What's his name? Who who, who yes, read the original? Lionel Davison. That's right, Lionel mm. Davison. Um, yes, um, and a, a very faithful adaptation from Jonathan Hales. Um, so yes, there there ends a super series. I always I'm always a bit philosophical about really good shows that don't come back. Um, I do wonder, you know, if they had come back, whether you would have had diminishing returns, script editors who weren't as hot as some of the others. And, yeah, you just wonder if the team gets farmed out, uh, whether you get diminishing returns. We will never know, but it's a beautiful series. And it's just, if you like thrillers like I do, 
and um, if you like things that are just slightly macabre, like as I say, like Tales of the Unexpected, um, I, I really would recommend it. Um, I have a um, I have a little fact about the Chelsea Murders, the book. The original yeah. title, the American title, is Murder Games, and it <laughs> won the the Gold Dagger Award in 1978. So, oh, good! So, yeah. Yay! Looks like it's one that obviously. It does look like it is one that was meant to be set in in Chelsea in in London. It wasn't renamed or wasn't Chelsea in New York or anything. Uh, no, no. So it always it, definitely it's... yes. It wasn't. There wasn't uh, the same readaption that Dogs Ransom mm. had. It well, it was definitely mm. the the real McCoy. It was it was always going to yeah. be uh, set in London. So, but yes, you, you again. So even some of the dialogue at the end is is uh, identical to. Uh, mm. To that. Oh, and a, a, a special uh, two, two mentions of uh, two young actors at the time. Uh, David Yip, who was later mm-hmm. beyond the Chinese detective and a view to a kill, plays a, yeah. a dodgy jean salesman. Uh, ni- nice little performance there. He doesn't get very a great deal to do, but and the other one is, let's see if I c- I can't remember is it Dario or somebody. He plays the um, Arab character, the, the young Arab lad. Um, yeah. He was in the Blake 7 episode Horizon uh, as the lead character in that I've often wondered why he didn't go on to do things, sadly he hung himself in 1981 uh, mm. so sad tragic more so when you think he probably didn't live to see um, Chelsea Murders actually televised which of mm. course that was televised mm. in 81 so uh, right at the end of 81 so mm. very sad because um, yeah. he was a good little actor so Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and a very early video recorder as well. It's in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting with the with the old finger buttons and. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> Monique, um I think we've run out of time. And uh, yes. thank you, listeners, for um, joining us again. For uh, <laughs> it sounds like it's, we've got our own podcast. The uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, apologies the Chelsea, to Toby. Yeah, the Chel- the Chelsea pods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Apologies to Toby and Lisa for dawdling on this one for so long I did I kind of wanted it to do it so badly uh but I wanted the circumstances to be right I, I definitely wanted someone to talk to about it which I have done yeah. and yeah. um because I, I just I just feel articles have done much better if you've got someone to bounce off um yeah, sure. but so uh, well, it's thank you well thank you for choosing me as your present <laughs> even though I, I don't remember as much as you do um I certainly, yeah. well, only because I saw it originally I mean and I watch it yeah. quite regularly yeah, yeah. Okie dokie, listeners. We'll be back again soon. And uh, well, thank you very much, Nick. And we'll hand you back to uh, Andrew and Lisa. Uh, thank you. That was episode 52 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Martin Holmes, Nick Goodman and Paul Chandler. On the musical side you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The scripts for the Kit Curran radio show were by Andy Hamilton. And the producer was Derek Goodwin.
So here's Paul and Nick looking at... Armchair Thriller. So here's Paul and Nick looking at... Armchair Thriller. So here's Paul and Nick looking at... Um, can't you can't do it now. You say it then. So here's Paul and Nick looking at... Armchair Thriller. Bye. <laughs> Dreadful. <laughs> Do, 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 do it one more. Do it one more. I don't know what you want to do. So, so here, do that. So here's Paul and Nick looking at armchair thriller.